boosting the supply of BC doctors. This will be the first new medical school in Western Canada in 50 years. The new SFU School of Medicine and why critics say it can't open soon enough. The tragic death of Trayvon Desjardins at an Abbotsford group home. What a coroner's inquest reveals about his final days. And the Vancouver Canucks served with a human rights complaint. The Canucks were putting a lot of pressure on me to not go public. What the team says about allegations from a former employee. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. The province is delaying the start of a new medical school at SFU Surrey, but making a significant investment to get it up and running. The medical school was first announced during the 2020 provincial election campaign. And as Richard Zussman reports, it won't be pumping out doctors for several years yet. Late registration. There are considerable logistics behind setting up a new medical school and doing it properly. BC Premier David Eby on the Surrey SFU campus Monday announcing students at the new medical school won't be here until 2026. The NDP promised the school in 2020. Originally, the plan was to have students graduating as early as 2024. Then it was amended to open starting in 2023, now pushed back an additional three years. This medical school is not going to solve the urgent issues we face today. This is a long-term investment in a secure public health care system that works for everybody in our province. They should have been adding new training spaces for doctors back in their first term. That's what we did. We more than doubled the amount of training spaces at UBC in our first year in government, knowing that it takes seven years to train doctors. This marks the first new medical school in Western Canada in 55 years, and the second in BC alongside UBC. It is a school the B.C. Liberals once rejected, and there are some concerns about where the teachers will be found. How do we ensure that we've got more teachers and faculty on the ground embedded in settings where it's necessary that patient care takes precedence and priority? With nearly a million British Columbians without a family doctor, the province has been trying to find more doctors in both the long and short term tripling the practice-ready assessment for internationally trained doctors from 32 to 96, adding new nursing seats and allied health seats to post-secondary institutions, and extra undergraduate spaces and residency spaces at UBC's Faculty of Medicine. All the steps that have been taking are components in order to move in a trajectory that will address that looming healthcare human resource issue. By the time medical students finally walk this campus, the need will be even greater, with a staggering 40% of current physicians expected to retire between now and the first graduating class in 2030. Richard Zosman, Global News, Victoria. Okay, Keith Baldry joins us now. Keith, a lot of people are are noticing this new style of leadership uh, we're Mm -hmm. seeing from Premier Eby, obviously raising his profile with a lot of big announcements. Yeah, another day, another Premier EV appearance. This is a deliberate strategy. He's not nearly as well known, of course, as John Horgan. Even when he was Attorney General, nowhere near the profile that even Adrian Dix or Mike Farnworth had in other cabinet portfolios. So this is all part of a deliberate strategy, part of David Eby's 100 day, uh, days of action. And here are the components. Again, you're going to see David Eby front and center at all announcements. Unlike John Horgan, who let his ministers make all these announcements, he was very much in the background. Several announcements a week, including weekends. He's been 
busy on both weekends since he became premier. Priority issues are housing and affordability, health care, public safety and the economy. Everything else takes a back seat. And again, more evidence that the premier's office is more involved now. These priority issues are centered in the premier's office and managed by them. Much more of a centralized approach than the decentralized approach of likened by John Horgan. Again, David Eby using the appearance today again to touch on those hot button issues that are making his priority list. Now, I'm determined to take action on the big challenges we face together. Now, that's housing, public safety, and it's certainly the challenge of health care, making sure everybody has access to a family doctor. That's why we're acting to train, recruit, and retain family doctors now, today, and train the health workforce we're going to need for the future. So he is making a lot of promises, and they are not going to come cheap. Is there an increase coming somewhere for B.C. taxpayers? I don't think so. I don't think you're going to see raising taxes here. But the, I've never seen a situation where a B.C. provincial government has so much money at its disposal to spend uh, halfway through a fiscal year, not even halfway through a fiscal year. So, again, here's a list of the, the dollars we're talking about. They're massive. $5.7 billion is a projected surplus. There's also nearly $5 billion in contingency money that is not allocated yet. $300 million forecast allowance won't be used, which means they're approaching close to $11 billion in to, total potential spending. Now, to be clear, this is not all going to be spent, but the provincial law is if the government doesn't spend this money, then it's automatically applied to the provincial debt. And I think you're going to see the NDP government under David Eby hand out more uh, goodies, so to speak, not likely program funding increases. They become embedded in the government's budget over time. This is basically a one-shot windfall. And Selena Robbins, the finance minister, has made it clear she has to be cautious here, but look for more things, potentially more rebates, more grants and such. I think the government is eager to spend a big chunk of that cash, but certainly not all of it. All right, Keith, thanks very much. That's Keith Baldry in Victoria for us tonight. A B.C. doctor says Premier David Eby's announcement over the weekend to bring more internationally trained doctors into the province is a good first step, but more needs to be done. Dr. Toye Oyelase has recruited 10 doctors who were trained outside of Canada for his West Kelowna clinic. He says the premier tripling the number of seats in the practice-ready assessment program will bring more badly needed doctors to B.C., but the government also needs to focus, according to him, on keeping them here. He says one way to do that is to fund some of the huge overhead doctors are 100 percent responsible for. I pay for it 100 percent. Right. So it would be like having the teachers have to pay for the schools out of the money that they get from teaching the kids or having the firefighters having to pay for the fire hall and fire equipment out of the money that they get from fighting fires. Oyelese says without help with the overhead and funding more critical health care infrastructure, there is no guarantee doctors will stay in B.C. or in family practice once their three year contract with the government is over. A tearful mother says her son was neglected by the people who were responsible for his care. Trayvon Desjardins was 17 years old when he died by suicide in an Abbotsford group home. His body wasn't found for four days. At the coroner's inquest into his death, Samantha Chalafou described a troubled boy with plans to turn his life around. Aaron MacArthur reports. Raw emotion on the stand today from Samantha Chalafou. Trayvon Desjardins' mother. She testified today that her son was trying to put his life on the right track. He was planning for the future. The jury also heard about 
how he felt he was being mistreated at the group home he lived in. Desjardins went missing in September of 2020, but wasn't found for four days. His body eventually discovered in his bedroom closet of the group home he was reported missing from. Shalafu testified her son was making plans for the future and excited about the opportunity to move out on his own when he turned 19. She also testified he would complain about the lack of food and conditions of the Indigenous-run facility. Shalafu was shaking with rage and sobbing as she asked the coroner's inquest why the people charged with looking after her son were absent. She said on the stand, quote, they're supposed to be there to care for my son. So how is it that my son was left hanging there for four days? She goes on to say, if my son was with me still, if he had stayed with me, he would still be here. To me, that is neglect. If the table was turned, if it was me responsible for what had happened, or at least perceived to be responsible, I wouldn't have my child today. It would have been apprehended. The coroner's jury heard this afternoon from representatives from Fraser Health who said Desjardins had attempted suicide in the past. The inquest will hear from representatives of the Ministry of Children and Family Development, Indigenous care providers, as well as the Abbotsford Police. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Surrey Council is getting ready to take another look at the future of policing in the city. Kamal Kuramali is live with more. And Kamal, Council voted to stop the transition a couple of weeks ago. Why is tonight's uh, issue important? Yeah, tonight is important because we here will get a sense of the Council's reaction to that plan being put forward to keep the RCMP here in Surrey. Surrey's top Mountie is set to put forward a framework to council and present that uh, to council tonight. Uh, that would, uh, uh, for keeping the RCMP as the police of jurisdiction in Surrey. Now, this nine-page report, though, uh, it does provide some new details, although it is lacking in other details as well. Uh, it does provide some information on what maintaining the RCMP would look like, including RCMP having to hire 161 additional officers by the end of 2023 at the latest. That could come from the current municipal service as well. Now, the report also highlights two former RCMP senior leaders being brought in as consultants. But what the report is missing is what the final cost would be to return to the RCMP. Tonight's presentation would mostly allow council to give the go-ahead to staff to begin work on that final detailed framework, which would then be voted on December 12th. Some dates to keep in mind. Uh, it would then be sent to the solic Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth, by December 15th. And if all goes according to their plan, it could be approved by the province in January with the ramp down of Surrey Police Service beginning March 2023. Critics, though, say tonight's nine-page report was put together too hastily. There's nothing to talk about how we're going to transition this and what the costs of transitioning back to the RCMP as the place of jurisdiction should be and could be. The important thing we have to remember is the Solicitor General was very, very frank and sane. By the end of the month, he wanted a report on his desk so he could make a decision. With the lack of information in this particular report, it would be behest upon him to make a decision. 
And what, what's also set to be discussed at tonight's council meeting is a $21 million shortfall in the policing operations budget for 2022. In a year, the Surrey Police Service has already spent, uh, they say they've spent $100 million on that transition. So a very costly back and forth, Chris, that may get even more costlier. By the way, SPS and RCMP, we did reach out to them. They are choosing not to comment at this time until they see council's reaction to this report. Back over to you. Seems like we're a long way from a resolution yet, Kamal. Thanks very much mm-hmm. for that tonight. That's Kamal Kromali in Surrey. The new Vancouver School Board is set to take on one of its most controversial issues tonight, revisiting the decision to turf police officers from schools. As Amada Gahi reports, parents are divided over whether school liaison officers should be brought back. When an incident like of that occurs, it sort of makes you wake up a little bit. On back-to-back days in June, Vancouver's Killarney Secondary went into lockdown, including an instance when bear spray was set off in the halls. Police at the time saying a teenager who didn't go to the school had entered with the intent of assaulting a student. Harvey Bond, whose son attends Killarney, is in favor of the discussion happening at Vancouver School Board Monday night to reinstate the school liaison officer program. Anything that we can do to support our kids and our youth and our schools to make their uh, you know, education a lot more easier and for teachers to feel more safe uh, is something that we should look at. Decades after its inception, the SLO program that put uniformed police officers in 17 Vancouver high schools was discontinued by the former school board. It came after concerns that those officers contributed to student anxiety amongst many identifying themselves as black and indigenous. We've already had them out. Where's the proof to have them back? Um, I don't think we're a society that needs that. We're not America. We're Canada. We can do better. As an indigenous parent of three, Leona Brown is discouraged by the potential return of the program and is planning to advocate on behalf of her sons. In a city that calls itself um, a city of reconciliation, right? If we're going to decolonize and reconcile, listen to the Indigenous people on what we feel can be done better, inclusively, I think. I don't think that there's been a huge outcry from people to reintroduce this program, uh, but more of a political agenda. This week, B.C.'s Human Rights Commissioner recommended the school liaison officer programs be ended by all districts. But the ABC Vancouver Party, which holds a majority on the school board, campaigned on a promise to bring back police liaisons. None of the ABC school trustees were made available to comment until after tonight's debate. Emadagahi, Global News. The Vancouver Canucks hit with a human rights complaint. The young woman who says she wasn't treated fairly by team management and how the Canucks are responding. Next on the News Hour. Vancouver Indigenous Fashion Week was definitely not something I planned. It was more of a, a calling. A major showcase of cultural beauty that's more than skin deep. Coming up on the News Hour. And Lifesaver, a man recognized for keeping his co-worker alive and why he doesn't think he's a hero. That's a little later. But right now, for months, Canada's hockey culture has been under the microscope following disturbing revelations about sexual assault and bullying. And now the Vancouver Canucks organization is the subject of a human rights complaint filed by a former employee. Nitu Garcha reports. 
The Canucks have had their fair share of challenges on the ice this season, and now the franchise is facing a very different problem off the ice. The Canucks were putting a lot of pressure on me to not go public. This is Rachel Dory, former Canucks analyst and assistant video coach. After less than a year, the team parted ways with her in September, leaving many wondering why. There was no reason given for my dismissal publicly. Now Dory has filed a complaint with the B.C. Human Rights Tribunal, alleging she was fired because of her mental illness and physical disability, pointing to a heart condition she suffers from, and claiming she disclosed her struggles with anxiety attacks and depression to the Canucks while interviewing for the job. I want people who have mental illnesses and physical disabilities to not be looked down upon. Dory's claims are targeted at a high-profile and respected executive, Canucks assistant GM Emily Castungay. Dory says she was promoted, but before the Canucks organization announced it, a reporter and friend of hers wrote this news article about her promotion. The article features praise from Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreau. Dory posted the article on her personal social media and claims she was then called to a meeting with Castungay, who Dory alleges told her, you're not important important enough to be cared about and I don't know if you have what it takes to do the job mentally. Stories of racism in hockey, uh, stories of sexual assault in hockey, there's just too many stories. In a statement, Castongay says Dory's claims are quote absolutely not true and her allegations of what I said to her are false and inaccurate. The Canucks organization also issuing a statement saying we acted in good faith and abided by our contractual obligations, both during and after her employment. I don't think anybody expected uh, Emily or the Canucks to come out and say, yeah, we did it. Um, So for me, this was kind of par for the course. Dory, who also spent a year and a half as a video analyst with the New Jersey Devils, is also asking the tribunal to order the Canucks to compensate her. Neetu Garcha, Global News, Vancouver. All right, you should know the afternoon commute could be dicey tomorrow as snowfall warnings are in effect for parts of the province. And joining us now with more on what we need to know about the snow is meteorologist Christy Gordon. Christy? Chris, this is the timeline for the Lower Mainland. For those of you across Vancouver Island, the snow will develop through the morning hours. But for the Lower Mainland, we are expecting it to be dry initially and the snow will develop through the afternoon hours. So if you can head into work and then head home early, maybe around lunchtime or one o'clock, you may miss all of the dangerous conditions on the roads because it definitely will be heavy, wet snow as temperatures will only warm up to zero degrees tomorrow. And then it will continue to intensify. By Wednesday morning, we could see anywhere from five to 20 centimeters of snow across the lower mainland. So Wednesday morning's commute is also not going to be very good. Back to Mm, you. Sounds nasty. All right, we'll check in a little later. Thank you, Christy. Up ahead, don't let inflation spoil your holiday dinner. Food for thought as you roam the grocery aisles with tips to keep costs down. Next. With soaring inflation, you can expect to pay significantly more for popular holiday food items this year. Consumer Matters reporter Andrew joins us with details on what's driving those higher costs and also serving up some suggestions for a cheaper Christmas dinner, Ann. That's right, Chris. Whether it's turkey, ham, or baking staples, prices are more expensive for many festive favorites this season. While experts say there are still ways to save on certain ingredients, the best advice is to plan ahead and even get some of your holiday food shopping done right now. You should be expecting to pay anywhere between... I'd say 
10 to 12% more compared to last year. There are two areas where you'll see a huge jump. One is the bird itself. The other is butter. If you're a baker, uh, you would have noticed that butter is way more expensive, more than 20%, in fact. Well, if your plans include a traditional turkey dinner, Sylvain Charbois, a professor of food distribution and policy, suggests buying a frozen bird now. Avian flu is impacting several poultry farms in the Fraser Valley and will affect the supply of turkeys in B.C. He also recommends buying butter right away and freezing it because it's likely to get more expensive due to the Canadian Dairy Commission increasing farm gate prices. Ham has gone up about 5%, he says, but there are still good deals on ham and pork. You can also find savings in the freezer aisle, especially frozen vegetables, which still pack the same nutrition as fresh. California farmers were hit by a lettuce virus, but Charbois predicts the salad supply crunch will ease by December when we'll be importing lettuce from Arizona, where crops are said to be doing fine. And good news for bakers out there. The price of flour, he says, has gone down and yeast remains stable. However, spices are more expensive because they're imported and come from abroad. Everything you buy at the center of the store typically would be a safe place to go to get some sort of immunity uh, towards food inflation, but not this year, actually. This year, the center of the store, dry goods, were severely impacted by inflation because of transportation. So I would stay away. Now, next Monday, we'll get a better idea of how much sticker shock Canadians will face at the grocery store next year. That's when the latest edition of Canada's food price report will be released. It will predict how much food prices are expected to climb in 2023 and how the rising costs will impact the yearly grocery bill for an average family of four. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. Bon appetit. All right. Thanks very much, Anne. (laughs) Coming up, vintage Voyageur canoes lost forever. All of the work and the hours that the volunteers put in, and that's, that's the, greatest, the greatest loss. The cause of the fire that destroyed them. Next. Plus, Abbotsford police say the video doesn't tell the whole story. A very rough arrest shared to social media. From the stories we need to know to a look at what's happening right now around us. When BC needs to connect, BC turns to the source that brings us together. Global News. Connect. BC's Police Complaints Commissioner has opened an investigation after an Abbotsford police officer punched a man twice trying to subdue him. And a warning, some of the images could be considered disturbing. It happened outside the Abbotsford Centre after The Offspring wrapped up a concert Saturday night. Police say they were arresting the man for obstructing an investigation, but he refused to comply with their commands. An officer ended up using force, punching him in the face and pinning him to the ground. The Abbotsford Police Professional Standards Section is reviewing the use of force. They are asking any witnesses to reach out and contact them. A man from Alberta is now facing charges in connection to a 2018 murder in Chilliwack. 27-year-old Kyle Cromarty was shot to death in the 46600 block of Yale Road in October of 2018. No arrests were made at the time. IHIT's cold case unit took over the case in 2021. And last Friday, Harry Christensen was arrested. He has now been charged with first-degree murder. 
Prince George RCMP are investigating a fatal fire at a city motel there. One person died and two others were seriously hurt after a fire in the ground floor unit of the North Star Inn Saturday night. Firefighters were called around 11 p.m. and found flames shooting out the window. They brought the fire under control and damage was limited to the one room, but it's still in the range of $125,000. There's no word yet on the cause of the fire or the identity of the victims. Two vintage Voyageur canoes have gone up in flames in Nanaimo. The canoes were used to celebrate Canada's centennial, and a member of the local canoe and kayak club says that history makes the loss of the vessels irreplaceable. Kylie Stanton reports. They're gone. It's hard to make anything out in this pile of ash, but one look at Ashley Rowe's face will tell you just how significant this loss is. There's just like the remnants of like fiberglass. Two vintage Voyager canoes and the shelter they were under went up in flames Thursday night here at the Nanaimo Canoe and Kayak Club. They were built in the 1960s and were used during the centennial races at Expo 67. They were gifted to the club by the Government of Canada and have since become fixtures in its summer programs, field trips and community celebrations. I'm hearing a lot of clink, clink, clunk, clunk. That ain't us. But for the past year, volunteers have been putting in the hours, carefully restoring the crafts in hopes of getting even more life out of them for years to come. The bow and the stern have been worn away from being launched off the beach. And then the insides need a lot of work too. All of the work and the hours that the volunteers put in, and that's that's the greatest, the greatest loss. Nanaimo RCMP confirmed it had found evidence of a possible homeless camp under the canoe shelter and suspect a fire was set unintentionally. But there was no security footage, witnesses, or suspects. Poor judgment, really. And to make matters worse, the club's insurance will not cover the cost of the damage. With the carts, with the shelter, with the two canoes, it's probably around $23,000. A third canoe was spared in the fire and will continue to be restored. But the club says this incident only highlights the need for a boathouse on the premises to ensure this doesn't happen again. Their canoes, I, I recognize that, but the sentimental value of those and the history that they had in our community is what hurts the most, I think, just knowing that legacy of, is gone. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Vancouver police say speed and alcohol were factors in a car crash that left several people seriously hurt. It happened Friday night just before 9.30 p.m. at East Cordova and Powell Street. Police say the driver of a Buick Century sedan lost control of the car and struck a pole crushing the vehicle's front end. Three passengers in their 30s suffered broken bones and teeth. Police arrested the 35-year-old man behind the wheel, and anyone with dash cam video of the area at that time is being asked to call VPD. In Health Matters tonight, a baby toy called My First Words Cube has been recalled due to a chemical hazard. The toy was recalled for containing an amount of lead higher than the regulatory amount allowed under the toy regulations of the Canada Consumer Product Safety Act. Lead is highly toxic, especially for children, and can cause a range of serious health effects. Although, as of this month, the company hasn't reported any incidents or injuries in Canada. Consumers are asked to stop using the pocket cube and contact the company for a full refund. Just ahead, a reluctant hero. 
it's our obligation as people in society to support other people and help other people um, in any situation that others need help. How he saved his friend from electrocution and was recognized for those efforts. And the world's largest active volcano starts spewing lava. Is there any risk to nearby Hawaiian residents? The world's largest active volcano has erupted in Hawaii for the first time in nearly four decades. The eruption began late Sunday night, and while there is some ash floating about, the lava seems to be mostly contained to the crater at the summit of Mauna Loa. Hawaii's emergency management agency says there's no threat to communities living downhill at this time, and no evacuations have been issued yet. It followed a series of warnings that an eruption was possible after a spate of recent earthquakes in the region, including more than a dozen tremors reported on Sunday. And around here, in anticipation of snow, the city of Vancouver is opening several warming centers for the homeless. Powell Street Getaway on the downtown east side will open tonight at 9 p.m. And Marpole Neighborhood House will be open at 10. Oddfellows Hall in Fairview will open tomorrow night at 9.30. Hot drinks and snacks will be available. Meanwhile, beds and mats will be set up at five extreme weather shelters, including Directions Youth Services on Burrard. And that is your warning. It is going to start getting cold overnight and through the day. Snow is possible. And Christy has the details for us now. You're exactly right. I mean, temperatures are already starting to drop, Chris. Today we saw highs of about four degrees, but look at the temperatures out there right now. And through the overnight periods, we're going to drop to about minus four or minus five. With the wind chill tomorrow morning, we're talking about minus 10 to minus 12. And then during the day tomorrow, it's only going to warm up to zero degrees. And that's why we're expecting snowfall. Here's a look at the timeline. So it moves in from west to east. Vancouver Island will see it develop through the morning hours. We will be dry here in Metro Vancouver, but through the afternoon hours is when we're expecting that snowfall to push in. And it will intensify as it pushes in throughout the day. So by evening hours, the roads are going to be or the snow is going to be significant and we'll continue to see it overnight into our Wednesday morning. I want to highlight this. Those of you in Victoria, we're not expecting much at all. It'll be a mix of rain and snow or just rain. That is the one area that may miss it. Meanwhile, for Metro Vancouver, significant snow, we could see 20 centimeters by Wednesday morning. But Wednesday morning, a transition to rain. The problem is that's not going to wash all the snowfall away because the precipitation becomes much more spotty at that time. So we may see some snow wash away, but not all of it. And not all areas will see that transition to rain. Higher elevations won't, and certainly through the Fraser Valley, it likely won't. So we are expecting significant snow, as I mentioned, into tomorrow morning. This is the upper end of what we could see in various areas, but certainly a possibility. And so that's why we highlighted it. We're also expecting windy conditions. So we're expecting power outages and delays and the ferry certainly as well with that snowfall. So heads up on that. Here's your forecast for the rest of the province from the central interior sort of caribou region right down through the south. You will see snowfall as well. It'll develop through the latter part of the day and be light. The heaviest snow will be across the south coast. Again, pushing into Vancouver Island in the morning. It will be snowy. It will be windy. And for our region, we'll see it develop through the afternoon hours. So commute home, not good tomorrow. That's for sure. Avoid it. And your Wednesday morning commute, I would also avoid. Although precipitation will become spotty, you may even 
60 breaks of blue sky Wednesday and Thursday not looking too bad as well but by Friday temperatures drop once again and we've got another chance of snow believe it or not. All right here's tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from 100 mile house and Jamie says you're never too old to make a snow angel and I would agree. Thanks Jamie. I hope a lot of adults and kids alike will be making snow angels tomorrow. Excellent technique Jamie. Well done and thanks very much Christy. A celebration of Indigenous art, culture, and tradition is hitting the runway for Vancouver Indigenous Fashion Week. It kicks off today with more than 30 designers from across North America. And as Sonia Sunger found out, while fashion is the focus, the inspiration is pride. All of this is all embroidered with gold floss. Pam Baker, better known as Hemeklis to those closest to her, has become a pillar in the Indigenous fashion world, finding ways to instill her family's history in her four decades as a designer, turning garments into statements. It comes from your heart and your traditions, so you're um, sharing with the world uh, and actually educating individuals that we're still here. A key message of Vancouver Indigenous Fashion Week co-founded by Himiklis and created by her mentee, Jolene Mitten. The former model describes the event as her calling. I had a fashion show in 2013 uh, on Indigenous Day and then seeing these little kids just like run to the stage when they saw these beautiful, strong women walking the stage. I knew I had something really tangible. Seeing the impact of representation firsthand and wanting to build up pride in youth, Jolene launched Supernaturals, an all-Indigenous modeling agency. Those models, most of whom have been mentored by Jolene and Haymakeless, will be the ones walking the runway this week. Well, that's what we do it for. I think for Vancouver Indigenous Fashion Week, you see like maybe a kid that had a, like, a rough life or a rough year or anything like that, and you see them walk down the runway. I think that's what it's really all about, is creating that next generation of proud Indigenous people. It's very subtle. That's why I do like a touch of culture. Saffron Thomas has modeled in all three Indigenous Fashion Weeks, saying it's changed who she is. Having Jolene and everybody around helping like throughout the years, it's, it's definitely brought up confidence within myself. All three women part of a new intergenerational bond, using the celebration of their culture as a way to spark joy and pride. we got to work on building the self-esteem of our young people so that they can aspire to better things in their life. And by all accounts, their hard work is paying off. I just feel like I'm like a standout, you know, like I feel like I can do anything, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a great week, no doubt about it. All right, Squire is taking a well-deserved break. <laughs> Sitting in is Jay Janauer with a look ahead to sports. Jay? Yeah, Canucks back after having that very successful three-game road trip when they won all three games. They made a couple of roster moves today. We'll tell you who are making their way down to Abbotsford. Uh, and, of course, the Canucks taking on the Capitals tomorrow. It's a busy day of sports coming up. All right, look forward to it. Thank you, Jay. Also tonight, when his friend and co-worker was electrocuted, how this hero brought him back to life. All right, Jay's here with sports, and it's mm. nice to see the Canucks on a bit of a run right now. And I think Bruce Boudreau can take a little bit of a deep breath, sigh of relief, and exhale, because he was on the hot seat there for a while. Sure was. At least with management, not with Canuck fans.
Yeah. Yeah. Vancouver Canucks don't have the rally caps out just yet. Maybe some toques, though, with the weather forecast that Christy just offered up. Canucks had the day off today after they concluded their three-game road sweep in San Jose last night. It's the first time they've won three straight and five wins in their last six games. They'll begin a four-game homestand tomorrow against Alexander Ovechkin and the Capitals, but they'll do so without Vasily Podkolzin and Jack Rathbone. Both were sent down to the uh, Abbotsford Canucks about an hour and a half ago. With the puck lead pass, Kuzmenko in overtime, scores! For the first time this season, the Canucks have won three games in a row. The most recent victory coming in overtime against San Jose after they beat Vegas 5-1 the night before. It's a great win. It's a great uh, road trip, and it, it, that was courage and character. I mean, you know, we were obviously tired. We were obviously um, getting outplayed in the third period. But, uh, you know, we found ways to bounce back twice, and it was great. Held up by the goaltender, McCann scores! The win also marked just the third of the season for Thatcher Demko. The Canucks goaltender is among the league's worst with a .885 save percentage. Meanwhile, Spencer Martin is 6-1 with a save percentage of .907. It's not a secret, you know, I've been fighting it this year. So, um, Marty's been playing awesome, and... Guy's been rallying around him for sure. Um, I've been trying to help him out as much as I can. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I want to help out as much as I can. And I got to get my game going too. So, um, obviously, the guys in this room know that uh, I'm working hard every day. They see it on the ice. The Canucks are clearly now playing for each other and their coach. The recent performances have quieted the front office criticism of coach Bruce Boudreaux. After picking up just four points from the first 10 games, the Canucks now have 21 from 22. Especially just how things have been going the last, uh, or just to start the year here, to, to get it going, it's a great feeling in here. and um, Everyone's happy for each other when, when we succeed. So, uh, yeah, it was great to see. The schedule hasn't been kind to the Canucks, but it's about to get a lot friendlier. They now open a four-game homestand, and in the month of December, will play eight of their 13 games in Vancouver. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of steps we can take to become a better team yet, and we've done a lot of it with a lot of road games, and uh, so hopefully we can take advantage of some home cooking for a little while, and then we'll see where we're at. Unfortunately, yesterday's 4-1 loss to Croatia officially ended any hope of Canada advancing through the knockout stage at the World Cup. Canada's final match will be Thursday against Morocco, who surprisingly knocked off Belgium 2-0. Curious to see what roster moves John Herbin decides to make. you think he'd be all about getting Canada's younger players more coveted World Cup minutes. You can't also forget, though, that our country is still in search of its first ever World Cup victory and World Cup points. It was, it was still a good performance we can build on, and, you know, we still have another match, you know, so we need everyone to, you know, stay behind us because we're still trying to break new history. You know, we scored our first ever goal, which was a really special moment, um, and now we're still looking for that, that first result. So, you know, that Morocco game is going to be a great chance for that. They're a very strong team, as everyone else has seen, um, but no, we're looking forward to that, um, and that's kind of where the group's mindset's at right now. Group G and Group 8 action today. Five-time champion Brazil, the only uh, country, by the way, to qualify for every single World Cup, was scoreless until uh, the 83rd minute against Switzerland. Three ultra-quick touches finished off by Casemiro. Got the full leg into it, flicked the laces in for a little added-on effect. Only goal of the match, two wins for Brazil, three goals, four, none against. They're through to the knockout stage. How about Cristiano Ronaldo in Portugal? They met Uruguay. Ronaldo was a free agent, of course, after the termination of his contract with Manchester United this week. Portugal, though, so much more than just Ronaldo. Case in point, how about Bruno Fernandes, 54th minute, floats the cross up in the box for Ronaldo. He was selling it like he got it. He didn't. I don't even think he got any of his hair gel on it. It was Fernandes all the way, and he got one more. 
This time on the penalty. How about a little hop skip? Oh, maybe just the jump. Brazil through to the knockout stage. Uruguay needs to win in its final match to have a chance of going through. So here's all your scores today. Cameroon and Serbia playing arguably maybe the most entertaining match at the World Cup. They played to a 3-3 draw. Ghana beating uh, South Korea by a 3-2 score. Tiger Woods, long way to return to the links, is on hold for another week. Today, Woods pulled out of the Hero Challenge in the Bahamas due to plantar fasciitis in his right foot. Tiger, of course, hosts this event for a very select few. The 20-man field features 15 of the world's top 20 golfers. Canada's Corey Connors has been invited into the field after Hideki Matsuyama drew, uh, withdrew due to injury. Tiger's got a busy month of December still planned. He's scheduled to play alongside Rory McIlroy in a 10-hole match against Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth. And then the following week, he's going to play with his son Charlie in the PNC Championship. So the Canucks have the day off. They're back on the ace tomorrow, taking on Alexander Ovechkin. And the Washington Capitals should be a good one at Rogers Arena. Let's see if they could keep the mojo going. Keep the mojo going. Thanks very much, Jay. Up next, a man who brought his Buddy back from the dead. From the stories that touch us all to the events happening all around us. When BC needs to connect, BC turns to the source that brings us together. Global News. Connect. Jordan Armstrong's here now with a look at what's coming up on Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan? Chris, thieves have hit a charity Christmas tree lot. The lot in front of John Oliver High School in Vancouver is the work of volunteers and will tell you what they found when they arrived for their shifts today. Plus, with snow in the forecast, we'll outline what TransLink says it's already doing to try and keep buses and sky trains moving this week. Commuters may notice some changes even before the snow starts to fall. And we'll have the details tonight on Global News at 11. Chris. Sounds good, Jordan. Thank you. Now, saving lives is part of the job for paramedics. But today, they're recognizing the heroic actions of someone else. Catherine Urquhart has the story of a man who's alive today after being technically dead thanks to the quick thinking of his co-worker. I was sitting up on a workbench that was roughly here. Mark Dandurand remembers the moments just before he electrocuted himself and nearly died. It was December 2019, and he was working on Christmas gifts at his woodworking shop in Squamish. Picked it up, not realizing it was live, and then as soon as I touched it with both hands, that connected the circuit and sent me flying back about 10 feet this way. Business partner Alistair Osborne heard a large bang and rushed to his friend's side, then performed CPR on him for 15 minutes until first responders arrived. BC Emergency Health Services says that was a lifesaver, and they've honoured Osborne with a Vital Link Award for his heroism. We are proud to present you with an award signifying that you are our Vital Link in emergency health care in British Columbia. I just want to thank everybody for everything they've done and for keeping Mark here alive today. I appreciate it so much, and words can't describe it. Thanks to Alistair's actions and those of first responders, Mark made a full recovery, despite his heart being stopped for more than 30 minutes. He was still here, and he 
came down and saved me. So, yeah, it's very, very grateful that he was here. Also grateful, Mark's parents. I don't have enough words to express the gratitude as a parent for the outcome. Three years later, here we stand. And that is precious. Paramedics say this story serves as an important reminder. That the biggest takeaway from this incident is just the critical importance of bystander CPR and how easy it is for the general public to learn CPR. Alistair agrees and remains modest about his actions. I'm not a hero. I would uh, do this again in any situation that was, it was required. A humble hero, truly deserving of an award. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Right? Standing O. Pretty modest guy, Alistair. That's pretty amazing. Well but, done. Uh, well yeah. done. Glad everything is okay. Uh, it's not going to be okay in the commute next couple of days. Uh, final word on weather from Christy before we go. I would avoid the roads tomorrow afternoon. It will develop the snow that is through the latter part of the day. It is going to be pretty heavy, though, through the evening, overnight hours. Wednesday morning commute also quite dicey, although a transition to rain is expected Wednesday morning. But how much snow will it wash away? It may not wash, wash away much because mm-hmm. the precipitation will become quite spotty on Wednesday. So we'll have to watch to see how things uh, transpire. And then another shot of snow on Friday, possibly. Crazy. Stay in and give because it's CKNW Kids Fund Pledge Day tomorrow and we'll be on the air all day. Sophie and I from 11 to 1 p.m. We got some amazing uh, news to share, so tune in tomorrow. Thanks for watching, everybody. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.